right, folks. We've said hellos, hopefully. Um, and tonight we're going to be continuing the series, and particularly we're looking at the theme of sacrificial love. And that's our title for tonight, and has been our title all day. It was lovely to have George Snyman with us this morning from Hands at Work, and he was a great example of passionate love for Jesus, that sacrificial love that stirred him to be reaching to the lost and the poorest of our world. But tonight we want to think, what does that mean for us, each of us today? Sacrificial love. Sacrificial love is the key to what it really means to be human in the image of God, that God is love. And we want to begin by just unfolding from Scripture the important truth of distinguishing between what you might call self-sacrificing love and self-satisfying love. It's such a key thing. I guarantee that tonight, if you can grasp this, it'll shape the rest of the week and the rest of your life because it shapes our relationships. That difference between self-sacrificing love and self-satisfying love. And yet we use the same word, L-O-V-E, love. Same word for the way we relate to the person who's dearest to us, closest to us in life, the person that we cherish, that we value, that we care for. We use the same word love for our favorite sweet that we chew and eat and consume. Now imagine that polar opposite difference. I say to someone, I, 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 I love you. That could mean I want to chew you up and consume you. <laughs> or it could mean I want to cherish you and value you and care for you. Same word, yet directly opposite meaning. That's why it's so important for us sometimes to take words and to unfold, particularly not just what is the common parlance used them, what is the biblical understanding of love? What is that self-sacrificing love? And it's so key, as I say, it shapes our relationships. You see, there are two kinds of love in our world. There's a love that's about giving, and there's a love that's about getting. Do you love someone because what you want to get from them, or do you love someone because what you want to give to them? It shapes all our lives, not just our closest relationships, our friendship, our, our marriages. It affects our, our, our neighbors, our colleagues. It affects the most intimate expressions of love, express, even expressions of sexuality and sex relationships. Is it about what I get out of it, self-satisfaction, or is it what I give in this? even in the most intimate expressions of love? Is it really what I feel, what I want, what I'm going to get? Or is it about how my partner feels and what they need? Am I giving or am I getting? See, it's the very heart of our, our world and understanding of how God intended. You see, when God first made the world, on the seventh day, he rested. Now, it could have been that God rested in the sense that he made this globe, which is part of a vast universe, and he decided on the seventh day to, to relax, to rest. And so he kicked it all around the world, just as a game of football, just as he would get out of it. But the truth is that God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only son. They who believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The heart of that was a love that gives. Now, 
We're going to take two readings tonight. One of them is that classic reading from 1 Corinthians 13, often read at weddings or special occasions. It captures something of the true nature, and you see it throughout it, of a self-sacrificing love. And then we're going to take the words of Jesus, what it means to be a follower of him. So first of all, 1 Corinthians 13, and I'm reading from verses 1 to 7. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardships that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love, it does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. Always hopes. Always perseveres. The next verse says, love never fails. Father, we pray now that you'd come by your spirit. Give us fresh revelation tonight. A word that is so commonly used in our language to mean so many different things. Give us an understanding of that sacrificial love. That is what it really means to be truly human in your image. God is love. In Jesus' name. Amen. As Dave has mentioned already, this week we've been particularly conscious of the passing of Queen Elizabeth and the many tributes and the thousands who've queued to just pay their respects, as it were. And uh, this week I was invited to speak at the cathedral and... Um, uh, the dean of the cathedral was there, the mayor was there, and a whole group of significant leaders. And they'd given me a subject to speak on. And the subject was to speak on what does it mean to finish well, to pass on the baton, to inspire a next generation. Now it's a challenge because as Christians and Christian leaders, church history is full of where there have been significant Christian leaders who have not finished well, who've dropped the baton, who stumbled a next generation. One of the amazing examples that we have today is the life of our queen, Queen Elizabeth II. She finished well. She passed on the baton. She's inspiring now generations to come. What was it about her life that did that? And two things I touched on early morning session at the cathedral, these two things about our queen, her servant heart and her devotion to Jesus. Her servant heart. Her life was not marked by power, though there was a vast kingdom that touched so many nations of the world. And yet that wasn't what we remember by, by just how powerful all that was. But it was a life of service that really marked her out. So many of the tributes you hear and people speak of, it was her servant-heartedness.
What is it for us as church, in church leadership, in Christian life and living, to raise up a generation of people who are not powerful in their preaching or in their action, but who are servant-hearted? There's something about the servant heart. Jesus, the servant king, meekness and majesty. How do we cultivate that? How do we see that drawn out? That sacrificial love that is not self-seeking. It's not about my image. There's something about it that's sacrificing our own self-image. That's what Jesus, of course, says when he says those amazing words that if anyone's going to follow me, they will deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. What does it mean to deny ourselves? The big I in me, the I that wants to be noticed, the I that's concerned about my image. Was she talking about me? Were they saying that about me? It's all about I. And those amazing words in Galatians where it says, you take I as number one and you put a line through it and it becomes a cross. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That sacrificial love that gave himself now for me to follow him, I want to be willing to deny myself. Take up that cross and follow him. The first was that servant-heartedness. The second was that devotion to Jesus. And it marked particularly in her Christmas speeches, the Queen's speech, but in many other ways as well. I was telling the story this week of where Michael Green, who was a, quite a famous evangelist, and uh, the Queen invited him on one occasion to speak at Windsor at the chapel there. And after the chapel service, she invited him to lunch, together with many of the royal family. In the middle of lunch, in everybody's hearing, she said to Michael Green, um, uh, Reverend Green, she said, uh, most of my chaplains, they speak about our Lord, but you always speak about Jesus. There's something about that name of Jesus that's above every other name, that name of Jesus, every niche above. And for the queen, that was significant. And in her life, it was marked by a devotion to Jesus. Now, these two things, they go together. There's nothing quite like in leadership, whether it's in church leadership or whether it's in our role in society, of servant-hearted devotion to Jesus. See, for Jesus himself with his own disciples, and I often say, you know, if you were to look at it as a, a kind of DTS, a discipleship training school, the three years he had with his disciples, you get to the end of it, normally you get a graduation, don't you? But the end of it, one of them betrays him, the other one denies him, and they all run away. And you think, goodness me, if that's success, then that seems a rather limited uh, kind of... But then he appears to them as the risen Lord Jesus. And the first thing he says to them is not, why did you do it? Why did you deny me? Why did you fail me? First thing he says is this, is Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? Again he asks him, do you love me? And a third time, and each time he's giving him steps of leadership development. The first is feed my lambs, just nurture those new believers. Then it's care for my sheep, and then it's feed my sheep. But the motivation for it is that love for Jesus. It's a remarkable incident where Peter particularly, when Jesus asked a third time, he gets upset. Peter's upset with Jesus because Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Peter's just denied Jesus three times. And, you know, but there's something about human nature that's much more about our self-image. Doesn't he trust me? Doesn't he believe I love him? 
What is it to know that kind of selfless, servant-hearted devotion to Jesus? There's something about that that can change our world. That's why that great command of Jesus. Recently we were looking at priorities, and not just our priorities or our program as church, but what are Jesus' priorities for our world, for the church, for us as believers? And we looked at that first command of Jesus. It's not just the first command, but it's the first and greatest command. It was that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with your whole being. It's that devotion to him. But then he gives a second command. And you've heard me many times say that the second command seems almost a contradiction in a way, or at least a dichotomy as far as the first command. The first command says you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Well, that's my whole being. And then he says, then you love your neighbor. He says, well, I've got nothing left. Do I, do I try and keep a little bit of my heart, a little bit of my mind? Just, you know, what am I going to love them with? I'm loving God with all my heart, all my soul, my mind. But here is the divine key, this amazing divine principle. When you love God with your whole being, something changes inside. In fact, what the Bible says is when we do this, then the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We find a new source of love beyond everything we knew before. It's not me just struggling to, to muster up a little bit more love, just to stretch my heart a little bit more to love. It's actually a new source of love. It's a love I never even knew before. It's a love divine, all love's excelling. It's the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace. I begin to find I, I love people I would have never found lovable. I begin to find a, a patience and a kindness. To hear Dave's testimony tonight is telling of having come to know Jesus and at work he just found a different attitude in way he related to people, etc. It changes us. Now the challenge often, and for the church it's a real challenge at times, in church history it's been the case, and certainly today, what happens sometimes in churches, we, we make the second command, love your neighbor as yourself, the first command. And that becomes our religious practice. But we can't do it without the first command. It is the first command that enables us to do the second command. It's that loving God with our whole being and finding the Holy Spirit produces in us a source of love beyond us that enables us now to love people like we could never naturally have done. A source of love beyond us. It shapes society, you know. The answer to race relations and the whole challenge of racial prejudice is what is it that can make there's no longer a Jew and a Gentile? It's the love of God that makes that difference. Even today, you know, in Iran, which has been one of the most hostile religious communities, and yet the church in Iran is growing as one of the fastest growing churches in the world today. And to hear some of those amazing testimonies, to hear a Muslim all his life saying, He's come to love a Jew that he's got to know. Oh, where did that come from? Was it just a better education about race relations? No. It was something I could not naturally do. It wasn't me just trying now to find a little bit more love. It was the love of God shed abroad my heart, enabling me to love beyond which I could ever do. And that love has such qualities, and Corinthians 13 gives us just some amazing insights. The first one we've already dealt with, it's not self-seeking. It's patient, it's kind. It doesn't seek self. Do you know, it keeps no record of wrongs. It's not just that someone has wronged us and we've talked it through and we've forgiven them. 
but I keep no record of it. The challenge often is when someone has wronged me and even hurt me and, okay, we talk it through and I forgive them and we make up, as it were, and begin again, but human nature tends to keep a record of it. Next time there's an issue, next time there's an argument, all the previous wrongs come up. Yeah, but remember when you said that? Remember when you did that? And what about when you did that as well? And before long, it becomes the ammunition for the next argument. But that's human nature. The tendency within us that we keep a record of wrong. I was with a couple and not so long ago and they were struggling in their marriage. And as we talked together, the husband began to list the things that the wife had done. You know, well, she did this, and she said that, and she did the other. And, and as he gets towards the end of the list, the wife said, but I thought we talked about all that, and I thought you said you forgave me, and we, we made it up. And yeah, she said, he said, I did forgive you, but I'll never forget it, really. What is it, a kind of love? It doesn't just forgive, but forgets and keeps no record of wrong. Now that's not human nature. There's something about the love of God in our hearts that can make that difference. And, and Corinthians goes on to list, I haven't time tonight, but some amazing qualities about that love. It's a love that always trusts. Now trust is such a key thing in broken relationships. When somebody's been wronged and hurt, you can forgive them, but you then need to know how do you rebuild trust? What is about love that can actually draw out even renewed sense of trust in a relationship? And that takes time, as it means. It's a love that always hopes. As I always list at the end, love always trusts, love always hopes. Even the most hopeless situation. I've heard people say sometimes, oh, it's no good even bothering with him. He's a hopeless case. But with God, no one is hopeless. What does it mean for us to reflect that kind of love? We feel God has stirred for this city, a prophetic word of being a city of hope. What does it mean to sense that love of God producing in us by his spirit, a sense of hope? And that amazing prophetic word of Romans 15 and verse 30, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace you trust him so you will overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's the power of the Holy Spirit overflowing in us hope. Love always perseveres doesn't give up it keeps pressing on and finally it says love never fails that doesn't mean I never fail it doesn't mean you know I'm sitting my driving test next week I can't fail because God loves me and love never fails no it's not that kind of sense it's a sense that this divine sacrificial love it never fails to bring eternal fruit There'll always be, whenever it is that sacrificial love, God will use that. It'll never fail to have an eternal effect. Now we thank God tonight for all that tomorrow will be shared by way of tribute. For all of us, as we'll be aware of that funeral tomorrow, what would that mean to inspire us? To finish well, not to drop the baton, to inspire the next generation, but for us, that servant-hearted devotion to Jesus. Now, we cannot do it in our own strength. It's not a question of thinking, well, yeah, tomorrow that just inspired me to make a new resolution. I'm going to be uh, more kind and more patient. No, you can't do it. You need to focus all your love, 
all your heart, your soul, your mind, your being. But as you do that, God will fill you with his spirit. And tonight we want to send an opportunity for ministry that could be our best preparation for all that we witness tomorrow. It won't be us sat there watching that funeral thinking, if only I could be more kind. What is it to experience the Holy Spirit producing in us that love divine all love's excelling? Joy of heaven to earth come down. The Holy Spirit producing in us that self-sacrificing love. I'm going to pray now and as I do, I just want to sense that lead us into a further time of, of worship and response. Father, come now by your spirit. Help us to distinguish between that self-satisfying love that's so much a part of human nature to that self-sacrificing love that reflects your nature. Come, Holy Spirit, reveal to us that truth tonight in such a way, Lord, that it stirs in us that openness to say, come, come Holy Spirit, fill us afresh with that love divine, all love's excelling. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.